वेलकम टू सिंह टॉक Listen talkers around the table today discuss the things about growing up. We'll think about childhood, children and growing up using ideas from psychology, pediatrics and sociology. Is childhood natural or conventional and a product of surplus? Is the child a mere miniature adult? What does the world look like from the crib? What is the sense of self in autism? How do kids learn? Do children have rights? How do children shape the world just as they're shaped by it? What is the impact of socialization on development? What's the history of childhood and family? Must kids go to bed on time and why? Can we truly understand innateness? And what's the long-term future of childhood? and by extension the social world we are pleased and privileged to have three sin talkers with us here today dr malvika kapoor who's a child psychologist she works with children with mental health problems and promotes creativity in rural and tribal children in karnataka she is from niyas in bangalore Dr. Shilpa Bhatke was a trained sociologist and is at the School of Media and Cultural Studies at TIS in Mumbai. And Dr. Koeli Sen Gupta was a developmental pediatrician at Umeed Child Development Center in Mumbai. A special interest is autism spectrum disorder in children. So Malvika why don't we set the ball rolling with you and maybe we start from the start and try and visualize to the extent it's possible and practical and what does the world look like from the crib what is it like being a child at a very very early age take us there and we'll go from there thank you uh what surprises me most is that adults mm. hardly seem to know children mm-hmm. though they believe that they know all about children when you look at the child from the child's own world it's entirely different mm-hmm. it's almost like they are alien species <laughs> so what makes me say this say that is that children are born and they are considered a clean slate by uh, philosophers over centuries tabula rasa tabula rasa yeah and then a very famous psychologist himself said the newborn's mind is a blooming buzzing confusion <laughs> how was this, th- this? this uh, william james james yeah. however mm. this has been totally overturned by the work in developmental psychology in mm-hmm. the past couple of decades mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. they don't find the child's mind is a blooming buzzing confusion nor a clean slate mm-hmm. they find the infant coming with alert awake aware and absorbing constantly whatever that is going on in the environment that's beautiful now till the developmental psychologists could examine small children using the technologies like video recording mm-hmm. there was no way of studying this phenomenon mm-hmm. so the earlier earlier studies actually studied a day old baby week old baby month old baby mm-hmm. videographed it and found that a day old baby smiles in response oh within few days sticks out tongue when somebody sticks his tongue at him <laughs> mm. and within a month or so the baby can differentiate his mother's face from a mask within a month yeah from mother's voice from other noises so a newborn is found to track light newborn is found to lose interest if the things become boring they get bored they get bored then they don't look at right. it and but if you're newborn... constantly doing something then they watch it constantly so a child does not arrive anxious he or she arrives reasonably confident about it. yes and aware 
and wanting, willing to learn. Right. So, all the other areas too, whether it's cognition, language, they keep coming already pre-wired for acquisition of knowledge mm-hmm. of the world. Mm-hmm. So, by the time they are two, the experimental studies have shown they are like scientists in the cribs. Mm. They are constantly examining, setting up hypotheses and rejecting it. <laughs> without our ever knowing that they have picked up so much. Now, take for example how a small child picks up language, multiple languages at the same time, which no adult can do. Is, in that, that, a, is that a limit, tremendous, limit to that? No, no. They, they can learn so much, so fast, so many things. They can differentiate musical notes from noise mm. even before six months. Mm. So, what happens is it's the adults who underestimate this skills they are, they come with and think that we have to teach them right so they start teaching and when they start teaching the child stops learning because b- previously he was learning and you're not saying this for effect malavika pardon are you saying this for effect that when you no. start teaching they stop learning of course because they yeah. are experimenting yeah dropping the same thing picking up the same thing you think it's a waste of time so you pick it up and give it in the hand but they they are actually learning from experience right their experiment appears very boring to you <laughs> because you know it's purposeless but sure. no activity of a infant and a child is purposeless it's play no it is learning right. how to approximate actions how to approximate sounds how to look at things so from then on we decide we have to teach them otherwise they have no way to learn and that is when the destruction of the child's world, world starts because we believe we have to teach them in fact they are much more knowledgeable about what is happening around them than we are let me ask you this malavika so some of what you're saying is very interesting of course and somewhat different from what one might ordinarily believe but has this always been the case i mean how how is this journey of understanding childhood and and how what was this like 100 years ago 200 years ago 500 years ago that's what i said most adults thought that children were like lump of clay who knew nothing mm. but uh, our own heritage that uh, ayurveda pediatric ayurveda and even charaka samhita they talk of fetus feeling pain and pleasure at the third month mm. dawn of cognition dawn of awareness mm-hmm. whereas quite recently also pediatricians feel a newborn cannot sense things so you can conduct a procedure without uh, anesthesia whereas the, the infant is aware of the, the fetus is aware is an ancient knowledge but it has been supported by contemporary research mm. that the fetus is aware how they respond to maternal anxiety and happiness everything the fetus responds to it mm-hmm. so mm-hmm. now they are being corroborated that at a fetal stage he's already getting ready to learn you know face the world learn about the world so when somebody is already doing that there is no reason for us to try to teach them we should observe we should watch and we should know how they arrive at something So let me ask you this and maybe it's a good time to go to you Koeli. I mean uh, Malavika touched upon this uh, idea of pre-wiring innateness in other words. It's it's mysterious. It's a word which I think all of us understand but is that a big mystery scientifically where does it come from or would you say that it's not so well understood but eventually it's all genetic or largely genetic. You know to a great extent I think the current idea in the scientific world is we are pre-wired to certain things and mm-hmm. pre-wiring is determined genetically. Um there are different things that can be pre you can be pre-wired for you can be pre-wired for language you can be pre-wired for what is often referred to as temperament. So for instance um I think you said something about so are all children born eager to learn? Yeah. Right. So all ju- children are primed to learn, pre-wired to acquire knowledge, but the way they do it may be different. Some children are much more easier. Some children are much more difficult. Some children take time to warm up and be able to acquire this knowledge. And what decides that it's not that the parents tell them that this is how you should be, mm-hmm. but a lot of it that shapes later personality is often decided by child or infant temperament. and i think the idea is 
that temperament is to a great extent pre-wired. It's innate. It in, it's intrinsic. It's part of the child. Does that surprise you, or 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 at least in in amongst your community or in the community of psychologists, pediatricians? I think geneticists it's it's is, is it a knowledge you wear easily and that it comes pre-wired it seems to it's a big explanandum right it explains so many things away just by maybe we don't know the how question yet but yeah, does yeah. it surprise you maybe now in this century when when I'm part of this current milieu it does not right probably to people 300 years ago they would have been really surprised because like malvika was saying the idea was that the child is a blank slate yeah and everything that the child learns is because he or she is taught to understand that part of his is what the child brings with him or her into the world is now current knowledge mm. right mm. but it's again not an all or none thing that everything mm. is prewired or mm. everything is taught what is not prewired So even if you're pre-wired for acquisition of language mm-hmm. um we know that children acquire language skills differently mm-hmm. and it could be a phenomenon it could be a result of the environment that that you're brought up in mm-hmm. was there enough or adequate stimulation in the environment that you were exposed to so you're pre-wired for acquisition uh, for language but your levels of language are very different and uh you know there's enough study to show that families who belong to you know underprivileged low ses families there there is what is known as a there huge word gap among children who belong to mothers and parents where they've had to spend large amounts of time acquiring employment versus someone who's from a higher ses family a large word gap yes. so just the vocabulary would be very yes. different right? yes right right so um, so there is a role that the context plays absolutely. and of course it's an interplay of yeah. the two but yeah so it's it's neither just nature and it's not just nurture but we know it's a nature and nurture thing that's going on most of the time and 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 maybe going into some of the other kind of work that you do is it possible to arrive into the world while having no faculty for acquiring knowledge at all no that sounds really difficult mm. that would be really difficult to think of a child who's born into the world and may not acquire knowledge now if you think of some really really a language for language i don't think i've met kids like those however mm. that being said we do know of conditions where children are born without with very little brain small brain sizes like conditions like n encephaly right mm-hmm. where or right. you know significant brain malformations where you know that the potential for learning and acquisition of knowledge is really limited by physiological disturbances mm-hmm. so those kind of things are also possible mm-hmm. Mhm mhm and so social interactions do play a role it's it's a, it's a it's a yes. significant part yes. of yes social interactions of course play a role and social interactions are not limited to just the immediate family members but you know it's it's, it's everything is important it's interaction with the neighbors interaction with extended families interaction with the peers it's with the teachers so the social interaction across so many sectors are so important in how children acquire knowledge including language creativity imagination a lot of things interesting and why don't we jump a few years uh, shilpa and we'll just open all these planks up and see how we tie them let's maybe go forward 10 years and go to adolescence is there something interesting there i mean do you think what is childhood for you as you think about it critically as you think about it as a sociologist is there is there a problem there that interests you many things but before we go there actually i mean i'm really interested in the question of language that both malavika and shoyli sure. have raised and uh, one of the things one learns from linguistics for example and a scholar by the name of ferdinand de saussure mm. is about children's capacity to learn language as malavika was saying that they learn language without an accurate grammar without actually needing to learn the rules of grammar right. so if you learn a language before according to sasur if you learn a language before the age of 10 or 12 which is the stage at which he suggests language imprints right. then you will never need to learn the rules of grammar for that language mm. that you always automatically use grammar accurately and you find even children when they're in the stages of learning a language the inaccuracies that they have in language are related to the rules that they have so they'll say i goed right instead of i went because went is not in the in the program right it's right. sort of it's a, the errors they make are very logical 
errors. It's so they the get the assume, grammar right, they but get, the exceptions yeah. wrong, in a way. Yeah. Absolutely. They get right. the grammar right, but the exceptions wrong. So right. I think it's interesting to think about how our capacity, and as we become adults, as we leave this stage of childhood behind, if you try to learn a language after the age of 12 or 15, mm. then you will actually have to be taught the rules. Mm. And I think it's interesting then, again, as you say, to come back to the stage of of adolescence and in a sense I mean uh, one wonders and one of the things that uh, one has heard or discussed is that there is a stage in the schooling career Mm -hmm. again around the age of 10 or 12 when children start to see themselves differently they are transforming from children into adolescents and you know uh, there's now not just teens there's this sort of Almost like a this tweens. I don't know if you've heard the phrase tweens. It's sort of this newly created version <laughs> of... Pre- Part of it, of course, is a consumerist fantasy, right? right? Now they want to sell you clothes for tweens and they want to sell you all right. kinds of television programs for tweens. But there is certainly... There seems to be now a phase at which uh, children are growing much faster than perhaps we did 20 years ago. But I mean, has that always been said? Yes, highly likely. I mean, I think it's something that generations have been telling telling their children that, you know, Tell that me, life has chi- is accelerated. Has, yeah, has, has childhood always been childhood? I mean, has, what was it like? So, no, right? Uh, uh, particularly, adolescence is a creation of the industrial era. That prior to this, and certainly continuing today in tribal societies, children are simply part of the of the culture. They are part of the world. And they are immediately recognized as individual beings. This idea that there's this preparatory phase for adulthood Mm. is a product of the Industrial Revolution and the fact that now human, uh, no other species spends so much time in preparation, right? So by the time we're considered halfway competent, we are like 18 or 20 years old. And so it's it's a product significantly of surplus creation and this idea that you need this long educational process to prepare you for any craft so prior to this you had uh, you taught you were taught crafts you were an apprentice you learned a craft with either either in a hierarchical familial system as as in the Indian scenario, or you learnt it in an apprentice form as the way it was in your Europe for instance you apprenticed you chose a a craft or an art and you you apprenticed out to somebody and so you are already a productive now there's this long non-productive period where you're you're studying and you're in university and so this phase of adolescence and pre-adulthood now is so much I mean a product of the last hundred years and a little it's, more it, it sounds almost like you need to be able to afford adolescence um other, yeah. I, I mean. think it's still true, right? I mean, among uh, the low, uh, um, among the lower income groups, people often cannot afford to stay in school. They have to already become productive, earning members of their families. They have to look after younger children. So they're already performing tasks that are seen to be adult tasks in a certain sense. And if you look at the kind of rhetoric we find in our culture, there's this loss of childhood, loss of innocence. innocence. I think huge, and I'd be interested to know what others think about this idea of childhood innocence. I mean, so what is this childhood innocence that we are so frightened of destroying, you know? (laughs) And particularly, I mean, I'm particularly interested in issues around sexuality. So children get very, very, I mean, this idea that their innocence will be completely destroyed if we teach them sexuality education. As opposed to, you know, that right. we train or we we sort of empower them with knowledge that that would help them to just be what they are. And even this prudishness or whatever one calls it is not terribly old. I mean, maybe 500 years ago, people picked up the sexual mores or whatever it was some fairly early. Do you think well, that perhaps was the case? No, we've always ha- I mean, I think every known society has different kinds of norms. But this right. kind of, I think, very narrow norms around sexuality perhaps are... Right, uh, I mean, right. the na- I mean, historically, sort of the Victorian era is seen as sort of an right. era of great repression and right. narrow. And, and one of the things that Michel Foucault suggests is that this re- precise repression actually produced more and more talk and thought about sexuality. <laughs> Interesting. And we've touched upon the question of adolescence, uh, Malavika. Is a child, let's say the age of 11 or 12 or 13 or whatever that threshold might be, is one... A reasonably finished product, I mean, to use a crude phrase, or is there a lot remaining even after that? It uh, depends on the progress from childhood onwards. Mm -hmm. You know, I look at them through this trajectory Mm -hmm. that you are born when you are young, 
you bond with your mother or close close one so you and the mother you're a single unit right and by the time you are 3 you are ready to explore the world and then you move out meet other kids you go to school mm. then mother loses that kind of anchoring effect because there are others to contribute right and as you grow go into adolescence the family really recedes back in importance and they become the real peer group for them and the, you know all the loss and the mores is picked up from their Uh, playmates or you know other adolescents this is a transition each society has to go through mm. that intense bonding with the mother moving on to separating from her then becoming totally independent and make your own little community So I see it as a transition, healthy transition. Mm. Whereas if the adolescent is totally tied up to the mother, it doesn't sound right. Mm-hmm. Only a young infant and a small child is allowed that luxury, not an older person. So each one of us at each transitional stage move towards independence. So at at some level there is almost this intra class socialization right people of more or less the same age are flocking together learning yes, from each other Yes yes it is very essential because and and, and yes. as a paradigm is that something you feel all right about Yeah it is all right they have mm-hmm. to learn to live with people of their own age Mhm their own experiences because sometimes major decisions can be taken just by discussing with their own age mates mm-hmm. than from adults who have different goals from them for mm. them. Mm. So it is not necessary because it's a way towards independence. And what what is a major decision for a 10 year old? For a 10 year old he may say I don't want to go to college. <laughs> I want to play with something. Right. Right. Or I want to become a bus conductor. Whereas <laughs> sooner, you know, he meets other kids who are slightly older. They say this is seems better than that. Right. But if the parents say that it won't happen because they always feel parents have their own agenda which they mostly have <laughs> tell me is um, do kids understand adults far understand. more than what we think understand They're, yes yes they understand them very very well because sometimes <laughs> even a young child you know they have shown examples of below around the ninth month the babies have shown the expressions when parents are fighting they have showing the expression that how distressed they are right because they are fighting and then avoid the situation or keep them separate right which means such a young child too can make out what the adults are up to whether they understand the language or not by reading the facial expressions they can judge so if they are so good at it at such young age right so you can imagine how they good uh, good they are at reading adults even when they are little older so we read them uh, they read us far better than they we read them and and of, I, i assume kids don't have much difficulty understanding each, each other which one do kids understand each other do kids understand kids well or is there something? no they they like to i mean they mm. it's very important for them to have someone they understand you know mm. they always want to belong to a group if not a group at least few close friends so they need it and that is the one which anchors them interesting the other uh, question that can be asked is that you know obviously the image one has is of kids being cute and nice and all of that but and when does i mean and, you know clearly their thresholds which are crossed and you know if they're able to make out things at the age of 9 they're is obviously the ability to observe things which are maybe not necessarily nice and pleasant all the time so where to put it another way can kids be evil uh and you know evil is a dangerous word so it's yeah, meant uh, bad. within code bad, you bad. can say yeah. bad yeah. Yes. can 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 they be manipulative you see, in, in, in basically you know you said they are cute they are nice which you know there was a national geographic study where they show pictures of different animals right and then the human being right so then they actually show the proportions of the body and the expression right and then they say that uh, you like them mm. you know whether it's puppies or kittens or babies you like looking at them and playing with them mm. 
that is the proportion and the looks of it which makes them so attractive so probably it goes a long way in caretaking right the maternal instinct so there's an evolutionary out. reason for why evolutionary reason, reason why, for why the toddlers uh, or young yeah, ones are cute uh, they they do that mm. but uh, so they trick well, us into believing they're cute or whatever I and mean, they just uh, they don't trick it's their natural yeah, form I mean, they, they you know can. the proportion of the head to the body sure i mean all this makes us th- but your question which you asked is difficult whether they can be cruel they can be destructive mm. yes some children can be but then this predisposition occurs fairly early mm. Mm. in a young child you can see cruelty you know killing little insects animals right. and deliberately hurting somebody right so in child mental health we consider it a br- bad prognostic indicator what would that age be malavika around 6 7 8 6 7 years old yeah, yeah. Mm. Mm. you suddenly you find a child being unusually cruel it's not a very common condition but when sure. it comes we worry about it sure. because it is not going to get better Mm. so generally it is said that children are difficult uh, they are naughty disobedient but uh, out of 100 children 50 children grow out to be normal mm. but mm. 50% will retain some of those features mm. 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 and finally end up being a you know either criminal adult or psychopathic adult sure, sure. but prognosis in general is good that 50% will not be you know they will kind of come out of it and no longer remain that but we can't say that all children are divine and uh, that there are children who are not so <laughs> that's fine and when when does one acquire a sense of autonomy more generally speaking koyle uh, you know it, the first year of life is almost the baby's part of the parents yes. you know the <laughs> total the, dependence yeah total dependence the mothers there the caregivers are there to respond to the child's every needs and but then it's the second year of life and then children start to become these little adults yeah. in, in a in a different connotation of course and then they yeah. realize that you know i have the power to do get things done i can put my finger in a plug hole there and then mama will look at me and say oh you're not supposed to do that and i can do that every time and get a response so right. that's fun and they realize that they have the power to get things done also they want to do things by for themselves they want to eat that bowl of cereal by themselves they want to get dressed by themselves and that's autonomy that's interesting yeah, and when more, when would this be around the age of 2 second year the second year of life the second year third year and that's why it's called as the terrible twos and that's the age when the most terrible tantrums happen mm. because kids want to do things for themselves mm. they want to get better at what they are doing they if if they've learned to walk now they want to climb up a flight of stairs and obviously by that time parents have not had the yes. opportunity to let go so. yes and parents are scared because they don't know if the child will succeed or won't so they would rather stop the child from doing it because they see this as a way to prevent harm and that leads to friction and tantrums and things like that mm, mm, mm. so that's the first time that autonomy kind of rears its head in the early years but it's it's a phase of development it's how the organism is primed to acquire skills so if we do not allow kids those opportunities to learn by exploring as malvika was talking about before you know we kind of inhibit their growth and when do kids learn fear um and you know clearly they, these aren't yeah they fixed are, thresholds right they aren't fixed thresholds but there are lots of different things i mean what exactly is fear and mm-hmm. fear can be acquired in so many different ways mm. so say for instance a 6 month old baby who's very cute and will go to every person who you know kind of extends their hands to him or her when suddenly at 8 months be wary of strangers right will look at them and start to cry right and that stranger anxiety rearing its head and then maybe fear is also learned right so if the child notices that the mother whenever the mother steps out for a walk when he's one and a half and mother says okay do not go near the dog the dog right. is going to bite you right. so a child who very happily stuck his hand on the dog's head or pulled its tail will now realize okay this is a fearful situation i need to be aware of that so there's research to show the little babies are not really scared initially of spiders and things that we are all you know and snakes that we are all you know through of evolutionary sense primed to be scared of 
but slowly they learn it. And I think the jury's still out that are we innately primed to develop fear? Is it learned? Is it a factor of both? Mm. So I think some of these questions have not been answered in a very black and white manner. Mm. 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 Interesting. And 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 Shilpa, do you think kids have rights? Children have rights? I mean, so this this kid who wants to have this bowl of cereal, uh, and you know, it's not the most important thing, or you may want to put a kid to bed at 8.30. Um, the kid may be three and a half years old. When do you have to listen to the... When does, when does the notion of rights set in in a more uh, strict sense? I think children have rights. All children have rights from the time they're born. And I think the very basic right that every human being born into this world has is the right to be loved and cared for and looked after, which might sound basic, but most many, many children in this world don't have that. But I think also talking about questions of autonomy and all. So there is, then there are rights and rights, right? The right to eat cereal, the right to dress yourself kind of thing. Vis-a-vis. Sure. Uh, but I do think that there is an implication of some of these rights mm -hmm. on the child's ability to develop a sense of themselves as an individual and then to exercise that right as they get older and older. And one of the things that I've been rereading a little bit about is around child sexual abuse. Mm. And one of the things that research seems to suggest, and perhaps uh, Koeli or Malavika uh, will have more information on this, is that if you teach a child that the child has the right to refuse hugs and kisses, for instance, from mm -hmm. people they don't know, you know, this mm. idea that uh, my one one year old or one and a half year old does not want to be hugged or kissed by an aunt whom she sure. doesn't know sure. or uh, or indeed a friend of the parent whom the friend may know very well, but sure. the child doesn't. And the parent insists, no, you must hug this mm. person because they are your aunt or uncle. Then in later life, it reduces the possibility that the child will be able to act in her or his own interests when faced with unwanted uh, oh, touches, for very instance. Interesting. You know? mm. So if you teach the child early enough that, okay, you can blow a kiss instead, you can shake hands, you can say, hello, it's okay. You don't have to like everybody I like, which mm. is also the other thing, right? Because abuse comes often from people who are known to the child. So it's yeah. very confusing. Uh, They're mostly family members who are perpetrators. Yeah. Yeah. Of child sexual abuse. That's very right. And they sort of groom children, right? They're actually very affectionate and kind people. In our imagination, the abuser is a horrible person. But in fact, uh, they they actually... In order to abuse children, they have to appeal to the children, right? So That's they, they come so across as really friendly yeah. people. So I think that, that we have to give our child the sense of its rights very early so that when it really matters, so when they're 8 and 10 and there's a possibility that right. they might be preyed upon by right. by people, then they can assert themselves and, you know, uh, sort of assert their rights. I think I think children also have the right to information. They have the right to, I again, uh, sort of to repeat what I said earlier, I think they have the right to sexuality education, right. for instance. They right. have the right to consent. They right. have the right... To be recognized as sexual beings. And they have a right to say yes, they have a right to say no on all sorts yeah, of things. Absolutely. And we often tend to focus on the no. We've gotten quite good actually at mm. focusing on the no, but we are very, very bad at focusing on the yes. And in fact, the new law, the POXO law, that is uh, the Prevention of Child Sexual Abuse Act, uh, actually now has reduced, uh, increased the age of consent from 16 to 18. I mean, so in our effort to, to protect children, we now don't recognize them as sexual uh, beings capable of exercising consent till they are 18, which right. for women, incidentally, is also the age of marriage. So it's like, you know, I mean, I think it sends out very, very wrong signals. <laughs> Interesting. Let's, let's, let's ask the converse question. We've been talking about kids. Let's, let's talk about parents. And uh, we go to parenting. Is, is, uh, clearly, it's not straightforward. Um, because I mean, first of all, you become a parent, at least in the, in the case of the first child for the first time, and irrespective of what you may read and what social support you have and so on and so forth, it's difficult. Um, and there are all sorts of parenting. There's competitive parenting and this and that. And families have... It's a dynamic unit again. It shrinks in size and it's nuclear today and so on. Has parenting always been the same? What are the challenges today? And, and where do you see this... Uh, 
as we look out for the like any other kind of act as just part of an institution marriage family i think it's constantly evolving right mm. so parenting and what is considered appropriate and i think perhaps malavika has will have something to say on this that what is considered appropriate parenting will change from generation to generation so what was perfectly okay some time ago is not it's also deeply cultural so what's okay in one context is not okay and one of the things that has generated in recent years a lot of uh, sort of Uh, incendiary debate is co-sleeping for instance is it okay to sleep with your children is it not okay to sleep in some cultures it's considered totally not okay to sleep with your children you might suffocate them you might do x y z to them in other cultures it's very much in right. that sense the norm but i think what is true is that perhaps never more than in the age in which we live now has parenting been discussed and discussed and it's also now a marker of your success or failure as Yeah. As a person, how successful a parent are you? Which is from where sort of your books on it, right? I don't care what I do mom. so long as I'm a good parent. It just gets extended to. Or it's another marker, right? So now you need to have a fit body. You need to be a good parent. You need to have a well-behaved child. <laughs> you need to have a child who gets into X, Y, Z school. So there's that as well. The competition to get into schools, then to get grades in school, and I think that now being a successful parent. also i think fueled by the cult of social media mm. so now not only do you have to be a good parent you have to demonstrate it on facebook and whichever other social instagram or wherever else sure. you're on and or as all of us know life never looks like what the pictures people are posting on facebook and in fact there is now there are now studies on this right that what are the pictures and that facebook apparently produces anxiety in in other uh, in in others who consume this because everyone looks like they are having really smooth and great lives and these are the images you post of parenting and one of the one of the battles on facebook on right now is this pressure to prove you are a super mom yeah yeah, yeah. is is parenthood naturally anxiety inducing malavika no, parenting is a joyful experience which we have made into anxiety producing one mm. one by taking upon yourself that your ambition has to be fulfilled by the child and he should excel in school he should excel in whatever he do if the child says i don't want it you're not willing to take it yeah. you have to do homework you have to do tuitions you have to do this so you consistently collude with the school and force the child to do things which he is not interested do, do you inevitably end up counseling the parents a lot more than yes. working with the we children yes you say back off back off it's not needed it's not needed if he doesn't want to do it it's fine so we support the kids saying you know less they want to do it's fine because let the child decide how much uh, they can do and so quite often what uh, when parents pressurize children for their own good as they say yeah it is their ambitions <laughs> which they are trying to f- fulfill you, and you, you uh, don't seem to be pro parent at all malavika no i am not pro parent <laughs> of the kinds i see <laughs> and uh, then we spend lot of time with the parents saying you're doing all this i hit because he doesn't do homework i punish him because he doesn't do homework i said do you does your child know that you love him right they say no i said if you if he doesn't know that you love him and care for him and that's why you are doing all these things then why does he become upset if the child is convinced and trusts the mother or the father as people who love him or he's loved by his family he can take a lot of this kind of things but the absence of this disclosure that i love you that's very interesting and so you think it needs to be said explicitly it needs to be said or i've seen parents who don't even touch the child standing there complaining about the child but and the cultural issues here i mean obviously different no, cultures deal is, with no it is individual families individual families but why the culture says you can hit a child but not show affection sure i mean there's no yeah sure there is no reason why any culture should say that so once the child feels that i am loved i trust them then he can take anything right but if you simply hit and punish and uh, you know crib about them and snap at them and constantly find faults comparing them to others saying they are better people the child is totally shattered is there anything positive about this uh, comparison business no it's very very negative you should never compare one child to the other that's fine and neither at home nor at school because that's the worst thing 
I keep telling the parents if I say no, Mahatma that's why that's yeah. why I phrased the question the way I did is there anything positive about this benchmarking strategy at no, all No it is not There's Child nothing Child should have his own uh, you know idea that I should be better in this way He should say it I want to be like this You should not say you should be like them Yeah the idea should not come from you the child should himself bring it out and say i want to be this so one of the other things parents lack is what is called limit setting they don't know how to set limits they mm-hmm. set limits for everything you can't talk you can't do this you can't it's not like that very dangerous things don't do it you can't hit people you mm. can't destroy things you can't set fire but I don't mean, set limits on the number of biscuits you can have at once everything that yeah. they do limits are set that again child you know puts the hackles <laughs> up and the you know the child we have lot of conflicts because of this not actually saying how you feel actually they don't say it that do, do, i love do, you do do kids hate their parents more often they than do, you would sometimes imagine sometimes they do sometimes they come to, and they so much hatred and we sit there when the parents cry in front of us i love him why is he doing that they are very surprised <laughs> he doesn't know that Well, I mean is it a, why would the, her dad drop her to school every day to, uh, two times if he doesn't love her but the child doesn't no when he hits he hits so to compensate that you have to make up for it so you have to tell the child there are certain behaviors which i don't appreciate i don't like but nevertheless i love you you are very important to me and i think that is the best thing about indian parents we can work with them because basically whatever bad things they do to the child it's with love oh come on okay sure yeah, yeah. no no that is true i i believe in it there are hardly any parents who really don't like but isn't children. this universally true huh isn't by 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 would you say indian parents isn't it yeah, more parents. universally no, true there there could be indifference about children but why I is mean, it cultural i can talk huh. about indian parents huh. you know What is the wisdom on hitting on corporal punishment? Is it a total no no? Uh, I mean, that's my understanding that it's a total no no. It is a total no no. If you, if I'm asked as a professional, I'll say no. But a lot of them say our parents hit us, nothing happened. We are quite okay. So then I have no answer for it. No, I but think I think this is where the question of right comes in. It. But uh, you know, a parent hitting. is very different from a teacher hitting or an outsider hitting an outsider has no business to hit a child parent let me put they the have c- to think about it three times before they hit I, if i say no they will say who are you to say no you know i can i add so um i i agree with a lot of things that malvika is saying but it's also like you pointed out that she seems really pro child and not yep. so much in favor of the parents you know there are a few basic things that we feel that the parent sometimes is also struggling yeah right and that yes parenting can be anxiety provoking and not just because its parenting is a product of today yeah there are children who have difficulties i mean think about the parents whose child does not sleep through the night from the first month of birth yeah can that parent be relaxed no yeah. right and there are kids whose children are not speaking on time who have behavioral difficulties it is very hard to be a calm carefree parent when you you do not know how to support and help your child yeah and often parents will do what they know and maybe hitting is because they do not know better and then our job is not just to help the child but it's also about helping the parents that you know what there are other ways you can help your children so i it, the the parent is influenced to be the kind of parent he or she is by the child too so you're not just born a parent you become a parent and sometimes you're a different parent to one child and a different parent to the other child yeah and i'm going to say one more that's thing. very interesting yeah right that's and, very interesting yeah and sometimes you ask me you know you were you were asking not me really about um is there any benefit to comparison right yep. i think the most common answer is oh no 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 you should not compare children sure right we live in a society where concepts of child development are very very alien mm-hmm. they hardly people know about how children are supposed to develop and at what age should they be doing what now what is the common parents guideline 
to know when or not should I get worried? Benchmarking. It's benchmarking. Yeah, people right? of the same age, kids of the same age. Yes. And you know, how, how does a teacher know that there's something not okay with this child, that this child needs help when he or she has the experience of knowing that 40 other kids in the classroom are doing this, but this four-year-old isn't? I guess the important thing would be to benchmark appropriately, if at all, and make sure you benchmark of the mean and not of a high, I mean, right. not, to, not to somebody exceptional right. or right. whatever. I think but. we are trying to adopt a non-judgmental view of parenting. Mm. Because that's what parenting has been reduced to. You know, there's a lot of judgment mm. as to what are you doing. You should not be anxious. You should be this liberal parent. You should be doing this. You should promote autonomy. You should not hit. However, I mean, while we are talking of children's rights, almost it's the parent's right to have information. Yeah. And yeah. where do we turn? Where do the parents turn for information? Yeah. And to acquire that information in a supportive, non-judgmental fashion. Yeah, yeah, that's interesting. And you know, just as kids have rights, parents have rights too. Maybe uh, why not? But do they have rights over children, over their own kids? Um. I mean, so I mean, you spoke about. So can this. you hit because you're a parent? No. Mm-hmm. <laughs> can you exercise that right? No. Mm-hmm. But. You have, like, I think a basic human right is the right to have information, right? And that's across ages and across if you're a child or not. And I think people do not just do not have enough information about how to support children's development. And that's a factor, that's a, you know, the sad truth about the society we live in. We are very true, very quick to judge, but not really that efficient in providing support or understanding or help. How different is one child from the other? And then, of course, they can, the, the, the cliche is that yeah. every child is different, it's special. Yeah. And, you know, most cliches are true. Yeah. Rather, all cliches so are true. So, interestingly, but I let's think... Let's make that more complex. Yeah. The first response would be, oh, every child is different. Right. Yeah. But then we, um, you know, um, some because of this kind of links to the benchmarking issue. again. Yes. Yeah. Yes. So some of my colleagues were involved in this study across five countries looking mm. at typical, you know, child development milestones in the first three years of life. Mm. And what they found was really interesting that many of these milestones mm. are actually acquired at the same periods, be it in Turkey, be it in India, be it in Argentina. Obviously, irrespective of culture, irrespective of primary. Yes. Yeah. So there were some differences. For instance, the kids in South Africa probably were not very proficient in climbing stairs because many many in the parts of South Africa that the study was done in they did not live in apartment buildings and they were mostly like single story houses there were no stairs (laughs) there were no stairs there were no stairs and you know kids in India when we did it many of them didn't know how to use a sippy cup because sippy cups were not introduced. Those are cultural things. But the ages at which they acquired their basic milestones in terms of language, in terms of motor skills, were more universal than individual. And isn't that interesting? That's very interesting. Yeah. But so how different are kids from each other? What about the difference part? These are the similarities. Well, so then... Is there such a thing as a prodigy? Uh, of course, I mean, you can say Mozart did this smart yeah. set of things at the age of yes. six or seven well, or whatever. Well, we do but know that some kids are really good at certain skills. We do know those. There, there is giftedness. Yeah, yeah. And, and is, of course... They are, they are very special. They are way above everybody else. And again, surely there are things which are innate. Uh, yes. But then even in this case, would we put the kind a of set of things to the social context? Is to the context is important. You know, musician's child is more likely to become a musical prodigy rather than somebody else. So there are, but they are, you know, rare instances. Right. Uh, we are talking basically about ordinary families and ordinary children, but there are gifted people. So at the extreme end of the bell curve. Yeah, there are. There yeah. are really gifted people. Is it as hard to bring up, I mean, in your experience, experience a gifted child do you all get sort of people with gifted children coming to developmental pediatrics parents who are worried as is crazy is, as yeah. it is to bring up children who are at the other end who are developmentally challenged you know because clearly so there's this middle spectrum and all schooling and culturally are sort of geared towards this middle child of the who ranges between below average to above average you know and we all hope that our child is sort of the above average end of the spectrum. But at the gifted end, is it is it hard? Because the child really is perhaps way beyond her or his peers. Yeah. Yes, it is hard. And of course... It, uh, it is very hard to provide them the kind of uh, environment they need. Right. And it's and, also... And you use the word hard in the sense of a problem. Um, as in, is it is is it 
is it no, counseling no, worthy is in it... everything so to give the kind of uh, environment that the child needs but usually they are so bright they choose what they want but my understanding from fiction really my understanding comes from fiction is that the child is intellectually way above her or his peers but emotionally at the same level often as is th- this is right. coming from fiction so i don't know no, how accurate this fictional. is actually the hmm. gifted children have many many gifts Oh. also they could be emotionally competent okay yeah but if the parental pressure the, like the chinese tiger mother kind of thing then there will be lopsidedness in their development so we see children with extraordinary language faculties you know mm-hmm. they read a lot of books are way ahead of their peers but that actually puts them at a disadvantage sometimes because the other kids see this child as being you know different or weird and they are not doing the same kind of things or sharing the same kind of interests so this child might be gifted but might find himself or herself socially isolated so they they will have problems something because that sets them apart yeah. and let's talk about autism for a bit mm-hmm. uh koeli which you worked about uh, over the years mm-hmm. what is the sense of self life what exactly is missing and it, and is it largely genetic i'm sure i don't it's know it's mostly the, genetic mostly yeah genetic. it's mostly genetic and uh, i think it's this is a nice connect because often children uh, often the general idea is to connect being a prodigy with autism somehow sure. right? the savans yeah no? the savans autistic savans and just like malvika was saying that in the general population the number of people who are gifted is very minimal so yeah. it is so in the population of people who have autism yeah. right that it's not as if being savans is very typical and equated with having autism but the sense of self once again is such a vague concept i mean what does it mean to have a sense of self it, to to know that you are you know you have the agency for your own thoughts and actions that you are someone that is separate from the environment and we know that kids with autism struggle with some of this while growing so, up so let me put it other way right. hey, what exactly is it that kids with autism struggle with and we understand autism is a yeah. umbrella term and yeah. lots of kids right <laughs> so chill people with autism you know auto, auto autism comes from the word auto meaning self um and uh, people with autism children with autism are often very self absorbed and parents will notice that as the first thing that the child or does not respond to his name may have difficulties in communication does not really interact with other ages uh, age group children like his siblings or his friends and part of this um is seen in you know school settings in in the home setting so across settings these difficulties are present so and not every child with autism has the same kind of difficulty so some may have language but have significant difficulties making friends others may not be verbal at all may really be self absorbed may flick their fingers and find uh, playing with a pen absolutely fascinating and keep doing that for hours on end so uh what 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 would happen to an autistic child when do you uh, and if it's genetic you i mean you, there's nothing you can do about your genes beyond a point not at uh, this point not at this point but uh, once so again so what happens when you turn 20 years old or 30 years old or 40 years old and when when you stop being a child well ultimately it boils down to what kind of support does the system the social system provide you know and that cuts across not just autism but across all developmental disabilities is what yeah. is the future for our children when they become adults in a society like us that is so intolerant of people who are different yeah and uh, so i think that's a very different conversation probably but yeah. um, you know to make it more concrete people with autism will continue to have difficulties across the lifetime much of it gets better with appropriate therapy intervention mm-hmm. but subtle difficulties will definitely persist and a significant fraction of them will continue to leave lead dependent lives so it's not as if everyone grows up to be a dustin hoffman greenman <laughs> yeah. yeah yeah interesting greenman and where are we on this other question that we kind of touched upon a little bit are and analytically speaking are kids growing up faster are kids growing up faster i mean is there maybe i mean 
for example like kids hitting puberty faster relative to 200 years ago uh, they are at least girls uh, are for trend, sure trend line wise trend line wise yes judgmental yeah, yes. yeah. Is this is this link i understand from what i've read again yeah. that it's linked to nutrition as well as sort of hormones in milk and meat is this accurate well so when you do not have one particular reason you mm. kind of tend to look at whatever is possible okay. so we don't know how many of these are causative versus how many of them are correlational okay yeah. but we do know there's a significant correlation between childhood obesity and you know even earlier onset of puberty but we do know that the trends of puberty especially in girls is that girls are starting to show signs of developing breasts much earlier so it's not uncommon for young girls to show you know maturing breasts at 8 and 9 years of age whereas they were doing it maybe at 10 and 11 mm. Mm. so that's happening for sure and is, is where are you on this malavika are are kids growing up faster uh it appears to be so. it it appears to be so mm. because uh, so many changes are happening simultaneously mm. with the diet with the culture and i would even add technology to it right i mean impact of technology on different ways on a child i would think that they are growing faster so what's the future what's the long term future is 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 childhood going to disappear as it's traditionally understood i just hope not we must I mean, learn the ways of the pro- prolonging childhood probably you know reverse the trend somehow a bit and pr- give them some childhood if it goes to zero then we had it but that's assuming that there is a kind of valorization of childhood right yeah. that we assume exactly that this is a very discuss. beautiful phase in their lives whereas some of the things sort of when when he asked whether children can be cruel sometimes i think play playgrounds for instance yeah, they can and be. and there's a lot of sort of fictional and material in pop poetry about this you know about what cruel spaces playgrounds are you know yeah. that children are sort of and they play inclusion exclusion games they yes. play you know there's this kind of so so perhaps childhood is not as sort of calm and wonderful and beautiful as we make it out to be but uh, we should at least attempt for that suppose Why? suppose so we where, phrase where, it so huh? that's the question where does this normativeness come from where 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 are where why are we valorizing or privileging childhood not that there's anything wrong I'm, with it i'm wondering that if we were to rephrase it and mm. to say that all human beings from the time we're born until the time we die should have a universal right to a certain kind of uh, autonomy a certain kind of right to of course basic necessities right. which is sort of mandated by the un fundamental rights sort of food clothing shelter but also as we were discussing earlier compassion compassion you know happiness. empathy love and that this is an aspirational level not just for children but for for, all for of us. everybody all because ages. as as coeli uh, was pointing out that also well adjusted happy parents will also make for nicer lives for their children and so yeah. if we're able to to support adults who not just the ones who are parenting the ones who are not parenting and the ones who people a child's world right it's not only parents it's all kinds of adults and other children that people a child's world so suppose our our goal was much more well, I mean, see, obviously it's horribly utopian i mean but yeah, yeah. you know i mean it's if we don't uh, talk of utopia some happy thoughts yeah we can't aspire <laughs> we can't aspire to anything we don't I and mean, there could be childishness for. and childlike traits in a world otherwise what what what's the future of childhood see uh, one never knows how things turn up now the research so shows that older people are happier older people who has done that research the older people illnesses uh, threat life threatening illnesses they are much happier than the younger uh, parents <laughs> so look at it um, it's a paradox but uh, it is there so happiness can be found uh, at different stages so I, and so why not have it in all the stages why not try for it let me ask you a different question koeli this link between which we were discussing earlier between innateness and genetics um is it possible to own it 500 years out or whenever uh, one doesn't know the arc and it's one other episode maybe can one look at a child at birth or even pre birth and say these are the most profitable paths to take in life and go and become a fast bowler go and become a chef go and become of course i mean you come with a scale of set of skills and you do whatever you can and um 
is it possible? And you know, I, you used it, interesting words. It is too word. complicated. Uh, How do you know that? And it's scarily. Before she responds, it scarily sounds like Aldous Huxley's Huxley's yeah. Brave New World. It does. That's it sounds okay. dystopian. It sounds. You know, that's because fine. because if we take away possibility, we take away everything, right? That's fine. We, of course, of course, certainly. I think the question is not whether it should be done. The question is, can it be done? Maybe. The way I, we are I, I going, don't think so. things are too complex for us to arrive at such. What exactly is solution. complex? Everything is complex. The so, whole human system itself is complex, starting from individual to the environment to the genetic code recording. Everything is too complex to be predicted to that level. But we haven't we spoken that you come. innately wired for a set of things and but uh, environment i mean now the genome theory holds that the genes are affected by the environment so, so epigenetics and there yeah, are the kind yeah. of changes so, that happen it is too complex small so tinkering be... yes <laughs> <laughs> yeah this is horribly dystopian because it is. because no no because this is what we were told no this is you're born into a caste you do what your caste this is the caste is. system all over again it is it is Is. I think the idea is disturbing, but maybe it might be possible. Who knows, right? I mean, who knows how science will progress and how science will proceed? And maybe that science shouldn't be done. But the question still is that: Is it possible? Maybe I don't know. I do not have an answer for what will happen two hundred years from now. Mm-hmm. But at the rate at which we are going, it's quite possible. You know, we're looking at stem cells and you know how to fix diseases. So if we can fix, why can't we kind of set out a template for what things should be or how people should be? But should it be done? Is the higher you know ethical, question, ethical question, the moralistic yeah. question that we want to keep in mind? And I, what's important is to keep that in mind. and create that environment that supports that all individuals have the right to be different when we yeah. respect I, differences I think finally we do the not... ethics should dist- dictate yeah. science yeah. not the other way around right yeah no i think almost any sensible person would agree to that i think the question is a scientific question and uh, yeah that's a that's a is there uh, is there is there what is the biggest open question for you malavika as you think about childhood biggest question is can we allow the small children to be free to explore their own world and learn about the world so much less parenting much, much less, less parenting. tutoring yeah. stop treating them as wards yeah <laughs> any any closing remarks shilpa what worries you are you that they, they don't need to be worrisome things I think it worries me how much we try to control, how much we try to direct, how much we try to. So in a sense, I'm, I'm saying the same saying thing. Very similar things. That a more to, soft touch approach to, to Malavika, and and I'm 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 concerned about the closing off of possibilities. I think not just for children but for adults. You know? Yeah. I feel yeah. like a more open-ended world, a one in which more alternatives are possible, a one a world in which more things are valued. So not just grades, not just certain kinds of success. Where we think, and this is one of the things that I've been thinking about a while, that where we think not just A's and A pluses, but B's are fine. You know, it's fine to be middle of the road. I mean, what about D? I, what about I find e? even zero is fine. Yeah. Yeah. I think it, As, almost well, anyone yeah. would take a B. I think we, I think that that much we have relaxed. Uh, but what about the D? What about the E? I think it's fine to fail if we can teach ourselves that it's fine to fail. Then hopefully we can bring up a world of young people who also think it's fine to fail, and we'll have fewer people sort of being self-destructive when they don't succeed in what is conventionally seen as successful. Interesting. I think that's a good note to end this on. And thanks to all of you for making it. We look forward to having you soon again. Take care. Thank you. Thanks. Thank you. Thank you for having us.